The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Lord God, we, we offer these songs, these words that we've sung as praise for your mercy and grace. We offer them as a prayer for you to work these truths into our hearts and minds. May this not simply be a weekly exercise for us, but instead may it be an expression of what we believe about you. Change us, we pray. Make us a people who truly rest in you. And because of this confidence, a people who follow you and yield to you and hope in you in all of life's circumstances. Lord, we pray for our governing authorities. We pray they will fear you and humbly recognize that you have given these roles. We pray for the people of our nation, that we as a people will turn from worthless things and see you as our only satisfaction. Lord, we pray for your church to be strengthened and to remain faithful to you and your word. Lord, continue to work in and through us. Teach us what it is to be a church family. Bless this time of worship, our time of fellowship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, recently I heard, I heard an interesting study done by a cultural anthropologist, not a Christian. And the study had to do with all the different cultures throughout history. And it was interesting because he concluded that our modern secular culture is the worst equipped of all to handle suffering. He noted that every culture, every culture gives some definition to the meaning of life. In a Hindu culture, they would say the meaning of life is to to live a good life and eventually escape that cycle of reincarnation and go into heavenly bliss. Pagan cultures like Greco-Roman or Northern European pagan cultures say the meaning of life has to do with honor. To be a man or a woman that would do the noble thing. Various world religions say that the meaning of life is to to live a good life and go to heaven. And Christianity differs in that it says we can't be good enough, we can't merit heaven, and this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need a Savior who alone is good. And so we're saved by his mercy and grace and righteousness. But in this study, what this secular anthropologist realized is that every culture, every culture tells a story. That the meaning of life has to do with things like morality, being good, or, or honor, and hard work, service, and sacrifice. Or as a Christian to be like Christ. And with each of these stories, there's a place for suffering. Suffering is actually an instrument that leads to the meaning of that particular story. As a kid, I loved the book, Where the Red Fern Grows. It's kind of, you know, what pulled you in in that book, what really caused you to be invested in that book in any really good movie or story is 
in this case, this little boy, he's working and saving every penny for years. He's sacrificing. He's working hard. He's suffering, in a sense, to get these dogs that he's always wanted. Suffering and sacrifice is an instrument that leads to the meaning of the story. Culturally speaking, it's what leads to the meaning of life. Suffering can make you more virtuous, more noble, more like Jesus. But there's something different about our modern secular culture because the story it tells is that the meaning of life is to be happy and free. It's to live the life that makes you happy. So nobody can tell you what's right or wrong. You're free to decide what's right or wrong for yourself. The meaning of life in our modern secular culture is to have freedom to choose the life that makes you happy. Now think about it. If that's the meaning of life, then unlike all the other stories, suffering does not help you achieve that meaning. No, in our modern story, suffering, it's an interruption. There's no meaning or purpose. It can't make us better. It only disrupts what we actually want. And therefore, the only thing to do with suffering in our modern secular culture is to melt down and run away. And so this study concluded... There's never been a culture in all of human history more wimpy about suffering than ours. This is the world in which we live. And yet, because of our faith, because of the story that we read in Scripture, because of its teaching and example throughout history, we can be and we must be countercultural. And in doing so, we have something wonderful to offer to our wimpy culture. So, Acts chapter 14. If you remember, Paul and Barnabas, they're in this pagan city of Lystra. And because Paul just healed this man who who was lame from birth, the people think that he and Barnabas are gods who have come down in the likeness of men and they begin to worship them. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We're just men. We've come with good news. The good news is you need to turn from these worthless idols, these worthless gods that only enslave you and are powerless to bring you satisfaction. Turn from these to the living God. You know, the one that sends rain and gives you crops and blesses you even though you ignore him. He's so good to you. Good news. Think of how great he'll be if you turn to him. But Paul couldn't restrain the people. And then we read in verse 19 that the Jews, the Jews who wanted to stone them in Iconium had apparently traveled a hundred miles to finish the deed. So let's read. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts 14. We're going to begin with verse 19 and read to verse 28. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. 
But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to, to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, I want want you to imagine. Imagine you going on a missionary trip sent by Bear Creek Church in Medford, Oregon. And imagine that on that trip, you were treated this way. Having a mob travel 100 miles to hunt you down, convincing the people in that city to join them in picking up stones. Throwing big, rough, heavy rocks at you, striking you down. And thinking that they've killed you, they drag you out of the city like garbage. If this were you, and you made it home to give a report back to the church, would you conclude that God had opened a door or closed it? We use that term, an open or closed door. But with an open door, we tend to think of things, you know, things just go smoothly. They go really well. So God obviously wants me to do this. And, and there's this, this ease to our circumstance. And God guides us and he goes before us and he blesses us. That's what we think of with an open door. Now, if it were you, if a mob tried to kill you and you survived and escaped that city... Would you ever go back? Paul and Barnabas escaped and made it to Derby. And if they thought that the door was closed, they probably would have taken the easy route home. They probably would have traveled by land, going east, then south, back to the home church in Antioch. But this isn't what they did. This wasn't their attitude. Instead, they go back to Lystra and the other cities where they've been preaching and where they've suffered great persecution. In Paul's mind, adversity didn't mean the door was closed. He didn't run away and hide. In another instance, he says, A wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Obviously, 
His story, his meaning in life was something much bigger than personal comfort and freedom. There was a place for suffering. And Paul's not wimpy, viewing adversity as as some interruption to living his best life now. In fact, we go on to see that Paul not only doesn't cower, he doesn't curl up in some fetal position on the floor. Think of the trauma. You know, we're a culture that thinks about trauma, people being traumatized a lot, and PTSD, and, and not minimizing that. That's real stuff. Think about what Paul went through. He's, he's not curled up on the floor. He's not paralyzed by this incredible trauma. But he actually sees his suffering as a form of strength. Not his own strength but strength in the realization of just how utterly dependent upon God he is. You think Paul had this experience in mind when he wrote, but we have this treasure of gospel message. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul was literally struck down by a mob with stones, but he wasn't destroyed. Neither physically nor emotionally, he wasn't destroyed. He gets up. He goes back into the city for a night. He gets up the next day and he walks 60 miles to Derby. He's just stoned. And he walks 60 miles to Derby to proclaim the same news that led to a stoning. He's a jar. His meaning in life is that he's, he's an ordinary vessel made from the dirt with God's breath giving him life. Jesus holding him and all things together. And within him, what drives him is the great treasure of the gospel given to him, carried in him in order to, in order to open it up and share it with others. Our modern culture tells us that the meaning of life is to be happy and free, to avoid suffering. And Paul tells us, no, follow my example. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The meaning of life is not the comfort of earthly things. There's a higher goal and purpose than ourselves. Paul also wrote, 
I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, writing to the church. For your sake, I rejoice in my sufferings. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The meaning of his life is sharing the gospel. It's for your sake. It's for the sake of Christ's body the church. It's the growth and eternal good of another. This is the example and mindset that we need to have before us. This is the, this is the story of our Christian culture. Becoming a disciple means that we grow in this way of thinking and living, even seeing suffering as a means to this end. So this is why Paul doesn't take the easy route home. His goal is not, it's not simply to make converts and avoid suffering. His goal, his purpose is to make disciples. Disciples who will follow his example as he follows the example of Christ. It's an important desire for us to have. It's an important desire for us to have because... Well, what if our freedoms go away? What if more and more churches fall into false teachings, wanting to avoid the the hard afflictions that come when the truth of God's word is actually proclaimed? It's an important question for us to ask because we're rapidly seeing these compromises within American evangelicalism. We're seeing an increasingly strange and evil society There are growing concerns about our freedoms and prosperity and safety. And I don't say any of this to to make us fearful. We We are not to be fearful. I say it for the sake of asking, what's the meaning of your life? What are we about? Should we be afraid and melt down and run from suffering? Should we take the easy route? Or should we go and make disciples, following Paul's example? Faith has higher priorities than comfortable bellies and earthly things. Faith doesn't take comfort in earthly things. It takes comfort in the God of all comfort. Our comfort is in Him, in realizing that He is sovereign In realizing that he is good, that Jesus is on the throne, that he sees and knows everything that's occurring, that he intends all things for your good, that he's able to use even your suffering for your greatest good, a good that will give us a a weight of glory beyond all comparison. No earthly comfort compares to this. So... Comfort, comfort's not a bad thing. No, comfort is a good thing. The question is, do we take comfort in earthly things or do we take comfort in the God of all comfort? 
Is the meaning of life an earthly, fleeting freedom and happiness? Or is it Christ? Is it vain idols, false and worthless gods that cannot deliver, that cannot satisfy you? Or is the true meaning of life Christ and becoming more like Him? So Paul's goal is not simply to make converts and to take the easy route home. No, it's to make disciples. And this is why he goes back to these cities and we see him doing four things there. Strengthening souls, encouraging faithfulness, building churches, and entrusting them to the Lord. First, Paul and Barnabas return in order to strengthen the soul's Of the disciples. In Acts 15, we read about Judas and Silas encouraging and strengthening the brothers with many words. And so, strengthening souls, it involves words, it involves teaching the truth of God's word. On his first visit, Paul proclaimed the gospel, he made converts. But this is not enough. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's a message. It's the revelation of God that tells us how we can be righteous in his sight. Righteous through faith in Jesus. And we need to be strengthened in this truth because the gospel is not only a message that converts us. It's the message that tells us how to live. The righteous live by faith. It tells us how to keep on living, how to keep on trusting Jesus, to keep on confessing our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, to know that nothing can separate us from his love, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that that loving Jesus means an ongoing obedience to his commands, that the gospel reassures us of God's love for us in Jesus. The gospel empowers us to continue living for the sake of his glory. The gospel message, it strengthens our souls. It's not a one-time message. It's not a, it's not a ticket that enables us to live for our bellies. No, there's a new calling upon our lives. And Jesus is with us. And the Spirit indwells us and leads us to the truth. He strengthens our souls and causes us to treasure the one true God over the many worthless idols that that only lead to destruction. Oh, Paul had so much to teach them. The truth of God's Word strengthens our souls. And as we'll see, false teachers, they're going to be coming around telling these new converts that salvation requires them to become Jews. That they submit themselves to Jewish ceremonial laws and circumcision. And in response to this, Paul writes to these churches. Think of it. We have Derby, Lystra, Iconium. Antioch. This is the letter to the Galatians. This is in the region of Galatia. So Paul, when he returns back to his home church at Antioch, sometime during that time, he's writing Galatians. He's writing to them concerning these Judaizers. 
in response to this, so Paul writes and he argues this very point that these Judaizers, they're leading them astray. They're telling them a, a false gospel, a message of works and not grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. They need to know some basic teachings of the faith. They need their souls strengthened in the truth. They need to hold fast to the gospel and be strengthened by the truth of God's word. They need to have their souls strengthened. And so do we. Likewise, our goal is not simply to make converts, but disciples. Followers of Christ who know the gospel and continue to live by faith and discern false teachings that lead people astray. Legalism will lead you astray. It will puff you up with pride and cause you to boast in yourself and enslave other people. It will take the focus off of Jesus and his righteousness and put it on you. And what you think is your own ability to earn God's favor. But here's the truth. When we're in glory someday. Think of it. When you're glorified. Incapable of sinning. Perfected. When we're in that state of sinless perfection. God will not love us more then than he does right now. Even in our worst moments of sin, he loves us just as much right now. He accepts us and is pleased with us just as much as when we'll be in glory. And this is true because it's not your righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that's imputed to you. It's Jesus. It's nothing that you've added or earned. It's the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to your account. God sees you and loves you now because of Christ and Christ alone. Legalism will lead you astray. And so will antinomianism or cheap grace. The teaching that says, well, it doesn't really matter how you live. You got your ticket to heaven. You can live for your belly. Martin Luther says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The work of God is not, it's not to transport you to a better place. Sometimes I think people think that's what salvation, it's just about getting to heaven. The work of God is not to transport you to a better place. It's to transform you into the image of Christ. So Paul Paul returned in order to strengthen their souls, that they grow and become more like Jesus, that they know the gospel and live by the gospel and can identify these false teachers. And related to this involves encouraging their faithfulness to God. Encouraging. Here's that, that word we've seen a few times, parakaleo, that word that's both soft and hard, calling us and calling us to come and coming alongside of us, helping while exhorting. It's the root word for the role of the Holy Spirit, our paraclete, our helper, our counselor, 
the one who convicts us and points us to the truth. And this is how the Christian life is. This is the the tension found in our salvation, that, that God does the work, enabling us, helping us, while also instructing and exhorting us to obey. It's all Christ and his righteousness, and yet you must follow him. You must endure to the end in order to be saved. There's a tension there. It's Philippians 2 that says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, it's faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The encouragement of the gospel is that it's all Christ. And when we're truly in Christ, we're given the ability to believe in him. And follow him and grow to be more like him. And suffering has a role in this, doesn't it? And comfort is not a bad thing if the comfort is in Christ and not earthly things. Wanting happiness and freedom is not a bad thing if you have true happiness and freedom in Christ and not worthless idols. Suffering is not a bad thing if there's a purpose. And of course, we're not, this isn't to say we're supposed to somehow enjoy suffering. Suffering is suffering because it hurts. But if our meaning in life is Jesus, then we know there's a purpose that it will one day lead to an enjoyment greater than anything we've ever enjoyed in this life. Paul knew this. He experienced it. And he returned to encourage these new believers to remain faithful, to endure. It's worth it. Endure through the sufferings and the persecutions in this life because this is what leads to the kingdom of God. And when he returned, I suspect he encouraged them with something like this. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, these worthless idols, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. They won't last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Our story, the Christian story, what we know to be the meaning of life, it enables us to endure with hope. Instead of running away in fear. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But like these early disciples, we need to resist the false stories of our culture. And instead be strengthened and encouraged by the truth of God's word. The truth that tells us of something infinitely better. An eternal weight of glory. Sounds wonderful. I don't know what that is. 
but it sure sounds great. An eternal weight of glory. Worth every bit of suffering in the here and now. Connected to it. Producing it. Third, Paul returns to build churches. Verse 23 says that they appointed elders for them in every church. Now many people today, they like to think of themselves as, what, spiritual but not religious. They think of organized religion or the the established traditions as man-made structures that that get in the way of people's individual spiritual experiences and, and heart. More and more people are losing confidence in various institutions. I don't know if you can read that, but this Gallup poll shows that people's confidence in the church and organized religion is down to 32%, even lower than the police and medical system. But thankfully, the church is trending higher than the presidency and TV news. It's sad to see how the failures of sinful leaders weaken and discourage people from what Jesus loves. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus loves his church. He has confidence in the church because he's the head of it. And he's promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what we see in the book of Acts is Christ building and organizing his church. And he's not building a bunch of disconnected individuals or parts. He's joining them together into one body. Acts does not tell a story of individual spirituality, but of community, of third Sunday meals, of fellowship and loving and sacrificing for one another. And what we see here is a, is a structure of roles. Paul and Barnabas are discerning who in this new, can you imagine, there's just a brand new bunch of converts and he's going back and discerning who God has gifted to lead, who has the ability to teach. There are what Scripture gives us later as Paul writes Timothy and Titus, biblical qualifications for for elders of the church. So he he goes back and he discerns and and they appoint elders for every church. Elders or overseers or pastors. And notice also that it's it's not just, it doesn't say appointed an elder. Not one elder, but a plurality of elders. This is the biblical model. We see elders in the Old Testament. We know of elders in the Jewish synagogues. And, and this pattern continues into the New Testament church. And the elders, the leaders, they're not, they're not voted in as the most popular people. But it's by God's definition, by qualifications given to us in his word, that they discerned at this point in time. The plurality is, is important. Because in it, there's an accountability. I love 
for the many years I've been an elder here and seen, I, I've always thought, you know, Pastor Dale, what a, what a massive personality. What a charismatic guy. He could get anything that he wanted if he really tried. But what he really wanted was a biblical church, a plurality of elders, an accountability, a safety, knowing that Jesus is the head. He is. We have a plurality of elders who, if we don't agree on it, we don't do it. If somebody's, if there's disagreement, then we call each other on it. So plurality is important for the sake of accountability. It's a safety that guards one person from abusing power. And it's sad to see the the lack of confidence in the church today. And I wonder how many abuses took place. There's a reason people feel the way that they do. How many abuses took place because there weren't qualified elders? Because there wasn't accountability? Because it was one person abusing their power? We should be confident in God's word and structure Christ's church as we're told and hold each other to account based not upon the positions of men but by the authority of Holy Scripture. And we need to rightly handle the Word of God. This, it is our authority. We need to rightly handle it and, and lead in a biblical way. And you have a role. It's not just the elders. You need to be Bereans. Remember the Bereans? They checked everything according to the authority of Scripture. So we're accountable to Scripture, and you have a voice. You hold us accountable as well. So Paul and Barnabas returned to strengthen souls and encourage faithfulness. And this atmosphere, this atmosphere of Christ's design and building the church with, with elders and deacons and people gifted in various ways. It's beautiful, isn't it? Lastly, they returned in order to commit or entrust these believers to the Lord. With prayer and fasting, they recognized and and taught them that this is the Lord's doing. There are various roles. There are deacons and elders. But ultimately, Jesus is the head of his church. We are the body. He is the head. He is the ultimate leader. And in recognition of this fact, Paul and Barnabas, they pray and fast and commit, commit these people to the Lord. Commit each church to the Lord. The word committed is also translated as commended or entrusted, presented or set before. It's the same word that describes Jesus' disciples setting the loaves and fishes out before the multitudes. Presented, set before. They're recognizing that it's the Lord's work. That he is sovereign over them. And so they're turning the people over to the Lord's care. How difficult it must have been to leave. You know, Paul's like a, he's like a parent. And parents, you get this. In various situations with your children, you understand what it means to to pray and to give them to the Lord. You have 
your role, but ultimately you entrust them to his sovereign care, knowing that he, he's the author, he's the finisher of their faith. With these people, God is the one we read earlier. God is the one who appointed eternal life to, to all who believe. And as Paul says in Romans 8, God is the one who foreknew them. He's the one who predestined them. He effectually called them. He justified them. He glorified them. Paul is like a spiritual father to these new believers. And he entrusts them to God who is worthy of our trust. He is worthy because as much as we love our own children, God loves them more. We hear that, but do we believe as much as we all, we love our children so much, but then to realize God loves them more. And Paul's thinking this way like a spiritual father, knowing that he can entrust them to God. He loves them more. He's able to save them and he's able to keep them. It's his work. And this is what we see as Paul and Barnabas report back to the sending church in Antioch in Syria. Again, imagine that, that you're the one sent. And now after a couple of years, you've returned to your church family to share all that's occurred. How exciting to be that, that sending church and to see your missionaries return. And the, and the church gathers with great anticipation to hear about Hear about your work and all that's happened. And with Paul and Barnabas, we'd expect to hear about their various encounters and the healings they did and the teachings they gave and the people they saved and the churches they established. And I'm sure they told many wonderful stories, but notice who gets the glory. It doesn't say that they told them all that they had done. It says they declared all that... God had done. All that God had done with or through them. They were instruments in the hand of God. He did the work. He's the one who healed. He's the one who spared Paul's life. He's the one who appointed eternal life to those who believed. He's the one who will keep them until the end. He's the one who opened the door to the Gentiles, which is, which is difficult because what that also means is he ordained the hardness of the Jews. Oh, that's hard. It's the work of God. And we exist for his glory. This is the meaning of life. And with this in mind, we know that our sufferings... They're not an interruption to our happiness. But they are actually ordained by God, intended by God. They come from His hand for your good. And in hearing such things, we might say, Oh, that's so hard to comprehend. Yes, it's hard to comprehend. But it makes sense that it's hard for us to comprehend. Because after all, isn't God eternal? And aren't we limited and finite in our ability to understand? So it makes sense that these things are hard for us to understand. Yes, we see in part. And God has 
has given us his word. He wants us to know. He's revealed himself to us. And the meaning to life has to do with knowing him more and more. But sometimes our best response is simply to stop and worship him. Saying, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How, how unsearchable are your judgments? How inscrutable your ways? Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who has given a gift to you that you might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, our meaning, our, our purpose is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. And so we gather to worship you and be changed by you. We gather knowing that you, Jesus, are the head of this church and your word is truth. Lord, please use this time to strengthen our souls, to encourage these, your people, to be faithful in the midst of so many difficulties of life, so many sufferings, anything the enemy is throwing at us. Might we be faithful to you? Our confidence, our comfort, Lord, is in you. Lord, now as we are about to enjoy a meal together, would you bless and enrich us with unity? Thank you for the blessing of this food, for the fellowship we enjoy. In Jesus' name we pray.